You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Quiva Whelan from Trinity College Dublin, entitled Tudor Antiquarianism, History and Fiction. So this paper is concerned with historiography of the English invasion of Ireland in the 12th century, and specifically how the use of vernacular source material in English can be used with very different emphasis to provide a different perspective on the past. I'm going to focus on the use of medieval history as found in that notoriously unhistorical compilation, The Book of Holt, and briefly compare the use of history in one particular administrative instrument in Ireland, the attainder of Shane O'Neill, created by Sir Henry Sidney, and both are roughly created around the same time. The Book of Holt is commissioned and partly written by Christopher St. Lawrence, 7th Baron of Holt, prominent, rich and politically active man from a long-established English family in County Dublin. He was born in 1520, died in 89. And the 16th century so-called Tudor reconquest of Ireland is in part dismantling the old political and social order in the name of progress, in inverted commas. And part of St. Lawrence's motivation in creating the Book of Hoth and the portion covering the history of the English conquest of Ireland until 1579 in particular is a desire to construct a history of Ireland which pays due attention to families like his own who have lived in and governed English Ireland for generations. The manuscript is 201 folios, 13 hands, and is a compilation of many sources. Valerie McGowan-Doyle has done significant work on the manuscript and suggests that it was constructed in four stages, with the first stage, the historical section, from folio 1 to 137, uh, which with we were concerned, uh, comprising the early part of the manuscript, which takes place probably around 1569-71. This opens loosely following Duralis Cambrensis with a description of Ireland, extracts from the Polychronicon, a 16th century copy of the late medieval English language translation of the Expugnatio Hibernica of Duralis Cambrensis, the English conquest of Ireland, interspersed with scattered remains of a work that I'm going to refer to as the De Corsi Chronicle. And this is with my addition to the, the contents list. I think it's kind of a separate um, edition. And these items comprise the medieval core of the manuscript, which anchors the volume. And it continues with genealogical material and extracts from other annals and chronicles. So our focus remains on the medieval history. Folio 6 recto opens with the first chapter of the Middle Hiberno-English Conquest of Ireland, a 15th century translation of the authoritative English um, Dexpognatio Hibernic at the English Invasion of Ireland of Duralis Cambrensis, charting the 12th century invasion. The Expugnatio, written circa 1189, is arguably the most influential and indeed controversial history about medieval English Ireland, written by the scholar and churchman Gerald de Barry, and was born circa 1145, otherwise known as Gerald of Wales or Duralis Cambrensis. And it's no surprise that St. Lawrence would turn to Duralis' narrative of the 12th century invasion when he tries to write the history of English Ireland. What's surprising is how he shapes the history. The Book of Holt, following the conquest, following the Expugnatio, opens by explaining how Dermot MacMurrah and Tiernan work, the King of uh, Meath or Breffney, 
clashed after the former had an affair with O'Rourke's wife. And this is all standard Duralis narrative. But the presence of another version of this affair story, a few pages into this historical section in the Book of Hoth, alerts us to the first inserted passage from an alternative source. And this is the De Courcy Chronicle. Inserted clumsily into the narrative of the conquest history, it's described as the cause of Englishmen's coming to Ireland and presents a fabulous-style account of the affair between the wife of O'Rourke, King of Midda, and Dermot McMurrah, which appears, to my knowledge, uh, without parallel in medieval sources. And if anybody knows of it, um, I'd love to hear about it. This bizarre episode is our first example of the fusion of at least two sources by St. Lawrence's team of scribes. This episode isn't necessary. The conquest text has already explained the backstory to the invasion in a much more respectable manner. This additional material actually confuses matters, its presence perhaps signalling the team's eagerness to challenge Duralis's authoritative account of events. The version of the conquest which appears in the Book of Hoth remains relatively faithful to the medieval source, bar stumbling over unfamiliar archaic references and suppressing references to the Pope. Most of the material in this section not drawn from the conquest text likely come from this de Courcy chronicle. Some of these are fairly dramatic battle scenes, uh, orations, um, but the Apple episode, so this arrival of the, the English in Ireland, is the most extreme sort of fableau episode, and one assumes not historically accurate. We must remember that part of the exercise in producing this history section in the Book of Hoth is to present a narrative which is not hindered by the biases of previous historians, so they just add their own bias. An inserted scribal comment towards the conclusion of this historical section makes this explicit. This much Camarense, so Geraldus Camarensis, left out of his book, aforesaid met, uh, with other things, more for displeasure than any truth to tell, the cause of what does testify. This argument, seeking truth in history, constantly reoccurs throughout the narrative, generally at a point where sections of the De Courcy Chronicle are inserted, in a way to justify the inclusion of this non-Geraldine material. Duralis is not telling everything, therefore we have to include other material. Conveniently, this additional material is chiefly concerned with the historical figure of John de Courcy, who's responsible for the conquest of the Kingdom of Olaid, um, similar to modern-day province of Ulster. De Courcy and Duralis's other main heroes, his four pillars of the invasion, Fitzhenry, Harvey, Raymond, didn't have any legitimate offspring, and this allows Duralis to stress the significance of his dynasty, the Geraldines, for the future of the colonial enterprise and the leading families in Ireland. The Book of Holt's charting of the history of the invasion provides an opportunity to illustrate the St. Lawrence's ancestral involvement in the invasion. It ensures that the family link to de Courcy was clearly demonstrated. Thus, the St. Lawrence family are perceived as descendants of de Courcy. Sir John Courcy was in friendship with a worthy knight, Sir Amor Tristame, now called St. Lawrence. By reason, the said Sir Amor married his sister. The Book of Hoth follows Duralis's narrative, which presents the advent of John de Courcy into Ulster as a fulfilment of prophecy. Following this, the text relates how the papal legate attempts to make peace, but 10,000 men were mustered to fight against John de Courcy. The Book of Hoth scribes breaks off midway through the English conquest chapter he's transcribing, so this is the start of folio 34 recto, to insert further details uh, on the battle from his other source in a long digression which lasts until folio 44 verso. And then he returns to the story of the papal legate from the English conquest, which bookends this uh, de Courcy chronicle section. But this also contains clues why St. Lawrence is keen not only to include this extra non-Geraldine material, but why he's keen to claim Duralis's unfairly diminished de Courcy's role in the invasion. 
He claims an ancestral link to one of the three commanders placed in charge of de Corsi's men. He put his brother, Sir Amor de Santo Lorentino, with the horsemen. This is just one of the many references to the family connection, which details how they received the land at Hoth, um, which was held in the 16th century um, by the family. Historians have frequently dismissed the Book of Hoth, generally, as a factitious romance, but as uh, Sean Duffy's pointed out, there may be an historical amore. As Sean's pointed out, de Corsi's charter to the Prior of the Holy Trinity in Dublin is witnessed by an Amoritius du Obera, and de Corsi witnesses a grant to Down Patrick Cathedral by an Amoritius de Hanutha, uh, an Amoritius de Hoth as well, um, and Amoritius de Ote are also referenced in Dublin charters, which suggests that this alleged connection between um, this, this character and de Corsi may not be wholly uh, spurnous. Duffy describes the traditional story of de Corsi as the classic tale of the romance hero who from nothing gains greatness by valour and good fortune and then loses all in the final tragic denouncement. The Book of Hope draws attention to what it explains as Duralta's misrepresentation of de Corsi as one of the key figures of the invasion. This story and diverse others of the thrice noble and worthy conqueror that none his peer was in all Europe for the manliness and stupidness of his own hand, I mean Sir John de Corsi, was left out of the book written by Geraldus, and yet he was sent by the king with his son John for the declaration of the truth. And then later, another section says, you may see what the world is, that vanity draweth truth aside as it shall appear hereafter of other things that the said Camerensis did for displeasure. So these comments from um, St. Lawrence and his team of scribes are inserted into the body of the text, reflecting on the history as it is being transmitted. And you know it's being altered because they tell you, and they're explaining that they're rectifying omissions. This is romanticised history, eager to entertain and to educate. In one of the chronicle passages, de Corsi is in Chester, where historically he had connections. In a dream, he's warned not to return home because his rededication of the cathedral at Down from the Trinity to St. Patrick has offended God. And Mary Therese Flanagan has written about this rededication. One source which discusses the rededication is Bodleian Library, Lord uh, Manuscript 526, which is owned by the Preston family in Gormanstown in County Meath. And among the entries in this, uh, this manuscript, which is mostly comprised of the Annals of Ireland, we find an entry in Latin which proclaims that the course he expelled the secular canons from the cathedral and replaced an image of the Holy Trinity with one of St. Patrick. And this suggests that the possibility of a Latin chronicle circulating in medieval Ireland. And as the Book of Hoth suggests, a translation of this may be what's appearing in the Book of Hoth. At the end of the historical section of the manuscript, a contemporary passage explains where this extra material comes from, offering an authority for the non-canonical extracts. And it says, this much that more, in the, more than Camerons did write of was translated by the Primate Dowdell in the year of our Lord, 1551, out of a Latin book into English, which was found with O'Neill in Armagh. Drogheda-born George Dowdell, Primate of Ireland, was a key player in resisting the Edwardian reforms and extension of Protestantism in Ireland. He was also heavily involved in the Marian Restoration and helped set the foundations for the Counter-Reformation in Ireland. He's noted as a scholar and he helped produce a volume of sermons, although there appears to be no evidence beyond this attribution in the Book of Hoth for his translation of this lost Corsi Chronicle. Dado was dismissed from his post as Archbishop by um, Edward VI in 1550 and fled Ireland under the threat of imprisonment. And his enforced exile on the continent in 51 may well have afforded him an opportunity to translate an old Latin chronicle on the history of the invasion. The Archbishop worked closely with the O'Neills, the powerful Gaelic dynasty, and Dowdell attempted to utilise his political skill as an agent of English, the English administrator in Ireland, Lord 
Deputy Anthony St. Ledger to curb their age-old O'Neill problem. And he was involved in persuading Conback O'Neill to participate in the constitutional revolution and was present at the indenture of Conback O'Neill as the first Earl of Tyrone. It's possible that O'Neill, the connection, is accurate, perhaps concocted to lend authority to the Chronicle. However, Dowdell's acquisition and subsequent translation of the Chronicle, um, which was held by the dynasty, is plausible. The portions of the Chronicle in the Book of Hope seem to me to counter the dominance of the Geraldines, presenting de Courcy, Amor Tristam and Roger Lepore as a powerful triumvirate leading the campaign in Ireland, specifically in Ulster. Who had seen Sir John Courcy, his brother and Roger Lepore, that was a great man in Ossery, must have said and reported that in all the world there could be none better than they three found. As in Geraldus's history, family connections are important, but here there are new connections presented. De Courcy and Amour are brothers-in-law in as well as brothers-in-arms, and Lepoire later marries Amour's niece, which absorbs him into the family unit. Many of the family were heroically killed in the fighting, but their dominance throughout the battles demonstrated their importance to each other and the English campaign as a whole. Family members involved in the fighting include Amour's two sons, Nicholas and Bastard Barefoot, and Amour's nephews, Lionel and St. Lawrence and uh, Geoffrey. Geoffrey Montgomery. It appears that the compilers of the Chronicle were attempting to craft heroes who measured up to Geraldus's heroes, and this suits the agenda of the compilers of the Book of Hoth. The Chronicle presents the heroes as chivalric knights, and thus in the Book of Hoth, the characters of this portion of the invasion story appear to overshadow and dominate the accounts of the individuals in the conquest itself. Um, Geraldus's version, well, the English translation of Geraldus's version, which is a much more staid narrative. The circumstances which motivated the composition of the Chronicle are unknown, but it seems clear that it's used specifically in the Book of Hoth to laud the ancestry of the patron and to connect the origin story of English Ireland in order to demonstrate a strong, proud and heroic history for the St. Lawrence family at a point where such old English families were feeling threatened by incoming administrators from England and new planter families. McGowan Doyle has plausibly suggested that St. Lawrence was motivated to create the Book of Oath precisely because he was feeling under threat from such new men, such as Henry Sidney, chief governor in the 1570s. It's a, she says, a reassessment and rejection of representations of failed conquest and proposals for its completion, particularly as set out in the Act for the Attainder of Shane O'Neill. This link to the 1569 Attainder of Shane O'Neill is, I think, accurate. O'Neill was the dominant figure of Gaelic Ulster and a significant threat to the stability of the Crown's rule in the 50s, uh, 1550s and 60s. His death in 67 offered the ambitious governor, Sidney, an opportunity via an attainder to emphasise his own role in the removal of the O'Neill threat, but also demarcate the statutory basis which would underpin the plantation of Ulster. McGowan Doyle has shown how Sidney was involved in many of the positive literary representations of himself, for instance in the attainder, and in Campion's Two Books of Histories of Ireland, Stuart Kinsella has written on his Sydney's use of monuments and how through his antiquarian tendencies and dedication to Strongbow, he attempted to link his own munificence to that of Ireland's past, often with little regard for historical accuracy. Stuart writes, in effect, a tomb for Strongbow was a tribute to Sydney. This identification of Sydney with Strongbow may partly be because he was unable to draw a direct family link, unlike, for instance, the St. Lawrence family with de Courcy. He may not have wanted to. So Sydney may portray himself following the footsteps of a military hero, the new Strongbow, to complete the conquest of Ireland. The attainder contains many platitudes celebrating Sydney's success and good governance. This document also uses the Hibernian Middle English conquest to write its history of Ireland, and is also a fascinating case study of how to rewrite history, again with a particular focus on Ulster. 
It uses history as the firm foundation for claims of the Crown to Ireland, confirmed by recent matter of record. It claims to do this through evidence of ancient chronicles written both in the Latin, English and Irish tongues, which present sundry ancient titles for the kings of England to this land of Ireland. Kieran Brady suggests that the history in the attainder diminishes the role of conquest and instead emphasises the legal basis for English rule and emphasises the king's role more than that of the military heroes. It does this, however, not demonstrating, in this case, innovative thinking, but by using and quoting two medieval English translations of the Expoctatio Hibernica, presenting the rights of the English crown to Ireland, followed by a brief reference to the arrival and significance of three figures involved in the 12th century invasion, Fitzstephen, Strongbow, um, and culminating with King John's expedition to Ireland. So this is combining Book 2, Chapter 6, and Chapter 33, following the medieval source. Identifying the medieval sources underpinning the medieval history in the attainder is hugely significant. The use of portions of the conquest and James Young's Governance of Princes, written in 1422 in Dublin. Well, James Young is based in Dublin. I'm assuming it's, it's written uh, certainly in Ireland. At times, it's almost producing, reproducing this almost verbatim in the statutes, which uh, sets our medieval translations of the Expugnatio at the heart of the transmission of arguments about the justification for colony. While the attainer may indicate the changing status of the English in Ireland, the revelation that many of the changes and details focusing on the legal issues in the early historical section are on account of the document's medieval sources suggests that its innovative new thinking has its feet uh, firmly planted into the past. The link between the attainer, which disinherits the O'Neill dynasty, and St. Lawrence's use of a book found with O'Neill may not be a coincidence, but the specifics of this link are as yet obscure. The presence of this de Courcy chronicle in the Book of Oath offers a glimpse of an old lost chronicle, but it also outlines the value of, and or various uses, of the history of the invasion in 16th century uh, Tudor Ireland. In some ways, this marks the end of the first phase of the conquest of Ireland and seeks to bring it to a conclusion. And as the perspectives of both the old and new English um, can be, as we've seen, they're drawn with considered, careful and biased use of medieval historical sources. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.